Welcome everyone to the podcast. Now I have an incredibly special guest on today. Um, they have published multiple books, the newest of which being New Philosophies of Film, An Introduction to Cinema as a Way of Thinking. Um, this man lectures and teaches at Macquarie University, and I've actually had the privilege of jumping into two semesters of classes mm. with him. Uh, he's a really awesome, passionate, um, wise teacher, and if you go into his classes, I guarantee you that it will expand your mind. I now welcome to the podcast, Dr. Robert Sinerick. Doc, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jacob. And look, thanks for that incredibly warm and, and generous uh, introduction, which I don't deserve, but is, is very lovely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I just somehow had the feeling that I know you would, you would have said something like that after. <laughs> <laughs> you know <Yeah>. me well. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Rob, um, what is wisdom to you? Ah, wow. So we're starting off with this, the small questions first and then build up from there. Look, I mean, this is, you know, it's probably the quintessential philosophical question, right? Because that's what the ancient Greeks, you know, in our tradition uh, started with, the, the question of, of wisdom and, and how to acquire it, how to live it. I guess for me, the, the simplest answer would be to say that um, wisdom is the use of knowledge for life and for learning how to live and how to live better, live well. I mean, for me, that sort of taps into that ancient Greek sense of, of Sophia, right? As opposed to wisdom, as opposed to episteme. I always say when, when we're in a philosophy class, you know, like an introduction to philosophy, and you talk about, you know, does anyone know what philosophy means? You know, and it's, oh, yes, it's Greek. What does the Greek term mean? You know, philosophia, love of, being a friend of wisdom. And so any, any girls here called Sophia, well, you're, you're very lucky because you're named after wisdom. So hopefully you have what it is you're, you're named after. And that question, what, what is wisdom? I mean, this is a really traditional and um, profound philosophical question. Uh, because I think, you know, people often think about philosophy as this uh, discipline that's about the pursuit of knowledge or, you know, understanding reality or, you know, trying to, to get out what truth is. And so and all, all of that's true. But but really, philosophy, um, certainly for the ancient Greeks, I think for many, many cultures too, non Western cultures as well, is a, a practice. It's something you do. It's, it's about a way of life. Right? And there's a lot of interest in this ancient Greek idea, which I think is very widely shared in other cultures too, of philosophy as a way of life. Right? So it's not just this abstract discipline, um, but whatever knowledge and understanding you acquire is only meaningful if it helps you live and helps you live better, helps you live a more fully human life. And I think that's that's when you start to to um, approach wisdom. Not saying that you've got wisdom. Um, Socrates, of course, said he knew nothing. Um, he was kind of wise, but he, he, said, he claimed he didn't know a lot. Um, it's that idea that, that, that understanding is empty unless it can be uh, part of what allows us to live better and that can be put into practice as part of a fully human life. So I think, and more and more, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm getting older, so I, I, I sort of think about this kind of thing a bit more these days. Um, I don't know, I often sort of in an exasperated way will say to my wife, gosh, you know, there's a lot of smart people around here, this place, but gee, there's not many wise ones, you know. <laughs> and, and I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a real, you know, it's a real comment because, you know, you can have all the knowledge in the world, all you'd be as, 
smartest person in the room, but be clueless, if you like, at another level in terms of how to live. And I think in, in the end, that's what's most important about philosophy. Is will it help you uh, live a better life? And, and I think that in the end is where it really becomes something more than knowledge and becomes something like wisdom. Wow. 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 That's incredible. That's probably, that's probably my favorite description um, of, of wisdom so far. Um, maybe I'm biased because I'm a philosophy student. So, <laughs> but um, that's really awesome. I'd like to ask hmm. what, what particularly struck out to me um, was living a better life. How, hmm. how does, in, in your experience, how does one go about living hmm. a better life? And, and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, well, that that's another fantastic question. I don't think there's a simple answer to that. Um, I mean, w- one thing I would say that's different for us, you know, in the modern era, modern world, is that we don't have a blueprint. We don't have some fixed, settled view about this is human nature. This is what human beings are really ultimately like or about. Um and if we know that, then we know what the optimal mode of life is for human beings. I mean, for the Greeks, in, in a way, knowledge was about acquiring understanding of who we are, the knowing thyself, but but knowing not just oneself, but knowing what it means to be a human being. And then once we know more about that, we have a better chance of being able to live in accordance with our nature. But for us, things are trickier because there's no one settled view about what it means to be human or, or what defines us. Um, I mean, it's like the existentialists would, would say, you know, the, the human being doesn't have any fixed essence or fixed human nature, or our nature is to have no fixed nature. Um, we're free. But in light of that, the question of how we should live becomes even more challenging, even more difficult, what it means to, to live a good life. So I think in the end, this is this becomes pretty much the central ethical question then about how, how one should live and what it would mean to, to, to live well in that sense of, living well, doing well, you know, uh, being good um, or being ethical. Uh, and I think that's where wisdom becomes linked to ethics. And, you know, those questions of practical wisdom or practical uh, knowledge and, and understanding, which is how to, how to live in a way which is ethically appropriate or even um, desirable, if not ideal, and, you know, what are the forms of knowledge that might help us get there or help us achieve that? So I don't think there's a, a final definitive answer to that. I think that's a great example of how philosophy is all about posing questions and exploring problems that we can't necessarily answer. But yet in the exploring of them and understanding of them, we, we get closer to or, or improve how it is we might conduct ourselves. Uh, so that's probably an example of that. that there won't be a definitive answer to, to that. There will be many different possible human lives that, that would count as good or worthwhile or valuable or admirable. Um, but I guess then it's up to us to to try and work out what that would look like in, in our own particular circumstances. Because again, I mean, we live in a very different world to the ancients um, and we have different challenges and different values and different outlooks and different perspectives. So that that's part of our reality, part of our world, and, and how to how to negotiate different ideas of, of what's good. You know, I think I think it's true, like the Greeks said, that, you know, people all even when they're not doing the right thing, are generally trying to live 
in what counts as a good way by their lights. It's just that we don't always agree on what that goodness uh, might mean or, or, or how to um, adjudicate between different conceptions of the good. In many ways, that's our big challenge in the modern world, how to, how to navigate our way through competing ideas or conceptions of, of the good life. Mm. It seemed like, um, that's funny because it, while I thought I would go into philosophy mm. finding kind of answers, I mean, what, that's kind of naive minded. I end up finding that my mind and everything I thought was actually destabilized. Mm. And, um, and I, I just want to like even touch back, mm. like when I was studying existential questions with you on, on that, on that complete freedom, mm. Um, on that complete freedom to kind of like the, your complete freedom to create um, thought projects and, and thought yeah. into the world. And I just, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to kind of touch on there and what's going mm. on there. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a, I, I had a very similar experience. I think a lot of people who come to philosophy um, and, and often that's, you know, in, in adulthood, I mean, we don't, here in Australia, we don't teach philosophy in schools, in high schools, which is a shame, I think. I think it would be a great thing to do, uh, teach ethics, teach philosophy. It would be wonderful for, for kids to do. So usually, unless you're doing your own reading, you don't really encounter philosophy, let's say, until you get to university or do a, I don't know, a, a course or just start reading some books out of interest. And um, it can have that destabilizing effect. I think that's... Um, you know, as, as the as the old saying goes, if you're looking for certainty, try religion. Um, <laughs> but if you're looking for certainty, you're not going to find it in philosophy. You know, um, philosophy is not about um, arriving at a definitive answer. It's about questions. And I think this, even with the ancients, that emphasis on questioning and on dialogue is is really key. And that's true for modern philosophy too. I mean, um, you know, philosophy will generally piggyback of established forms of knowledge and then question those forms of like question their foundations or question their concepts or question their arguments or question their implications and so on. Um, so it's more about questioning than it is about arriving at definitive answers. Does that mean it's useless or impractical? Not at all. I think, you know, as human beings, the, the whole task of clarifying our understanding is, is really profound and important and it's, it's, it's part of how we live in the world. Um, but one of the things that does happen, as you say, is that you can find yourself really stirred up and really um, perhaps even disoriented um, by having your ideas stretched or challenged or your views, you know, uh, put to the test. And, and I think that's one of the things that philosophy can, can teach. Um, you know, even in Plato's cave, one of the experiences of the philosopher leaving the cave going into the outside world is being blinded by the sun and it's disorienting the, the sun standing in for the idea of the good right and it's disorienting you become kind of blinded and, and stumble around it takes a while to adjust and then you have to go back to the cave and teach and help others get out and so on but that idea of just being disoriented blinded by the sun is, is a really apt metaphor because i think that is one of the things that, that can happen i think in a good way um i mean it teaches teaches us that our opinions are kind of fallible and finite and change and they're not they're not perfect um and they're not um you know um unquestionable like any of my opinions can and 
probably should at some point be be questioned or at least put to the test you know and generally we don't like that i mean it's funny when 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 we talk about argument in philosophy you know even when it's used in a quite technical sense um we tend to think about testing and probing positions or perspectives or ideas right we don't think about shouting or yelling at each other for i'm right you're wrong so <laughs> when you're doing debating now, here's my argument in the debate, right? And the idea is to win. Or here's my case, my legal case, and the point is to win the argument. Or even on the internet, God forbid, the point is to <laughs> flame the opponents and make them look terrible and then make my my perspective um, kind of stand out in relation to us. But that's nothing to do with what we mean by argument in, in philosophy. It's not about that. Um you know, if you're just sort of stamping your foot and beating people down because you want to win the the argument, then that's that's just fighting. That's just uh, engaging in egotistical kind of opinion bashing. That's not that's not argument. You know, um, so the thing philosophy teaches teaches you, I guess, is that you know, um, you are not your ideas. <laughs> I can put it that way. I, I think that's a really valuable point. I, I I'm amazed um, the way people especially these days, again, have become incredibly um, fused with their opinions. So if you attack my opinion or my view, my belief, you're attacking me. And this is like a fight to the death now. I mean, that's madness. That's the first thing that philosophy in the more traditional sense teaches you is that you know your opinions. Your opinions are this grab bag of, of items you've just absorbed from your, you know, your environment, your culture and society and just grown up with They're kind of useful enough to help you get by, but they're not terribly robust or secure or, um, you know, unquestionable. They're, they're probably in need of a fair bit of revision and, and uh, you know, transformation and improvement, hopefully. So that idea that, that we can debate ideas and opinions at a remove from ourselves, and it's not personal, that, that's, what, that's what I think is important. That, that's one lesson that I certainly got from philosophy early on, which I found very valuable um, and I like talking about ideas and, you know, if you get into the habit of it, you think of them almost as, as kind of objects with their own shape and they connect in certain ways and they do things and, you know, they have a structure, almost like in 3D or like a piece of music. You can see how they all fit together. And so you can get absorbed by how ideas work. And it's nothing personal. It's not about me or you. You know, we're talking about the ideas. That's the thing that philosophy can teach. And I think that's a really valuable lesson because today people are just, their own identities are so fused with their opinions and ideas. At the moment you question one of my views online, that's it. I'm flaming you, you're cancer, you're destroyed. I'm going to wreck you. You know, this is, this is really mad and, and quite at odds with what, what philosophy is supposed to be about. You know, whether it's about argument, debate or questioning, it's, it's, um, about, dismantling those opinions and not not um assuming that that you are your opinions whoa that's that's massive like i i was you know i was funny i was getting an image of um tony stark iron man you know how right, yeah. designing that <laughs> mm, mm. oh yeah like i, I like that yeah, yeah i it's funny because um that's quite a um almost like buddhist kind of taoist thing as well to kind of um to let go of opinions, let go of your thoughts. Yeah. Kind of, uh, and, and it seems that like life kind of functions better 
when you when you, we're not so fused to it. And I, I I've found the 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 less fused I've become to my beliefs, the more kind of mm. peaceful and kind of placid I've become. Look, there's definitely that contemplative side to it, and and so it does share something with the sort of Buddhistic. I mean, that I think that's what was always understood as a sort of contemplative side of philosophy, and that you know, I mean, contemplation gets a bad rap these days. Like it's all about action and and um you know activism zone. and that's that's fine of course that you know that's important but but that's not everything and I, and i think there's still that side of philosophy which is about the life of the mind or about contemplation and having that ability to have some distance or perspective maybe that's a better term perspective on your own beliefs and ideas so that you you can see their limits you know you can see their fallibility i mean um <laughs> most of us tend to think we're right most of the time about most things, but that's impossible. You know, if you think about it, um, it's just not not possible even for the smartest person in the room. So having a practice that makes you realize or forces you to reckon with the limits of your own opinions and the limits of others' opinions and ideas, and that there's always more understanding and more clarity and more you know, knowledge to, to be had, that's really important, I think. And, and just to come back to your early point about freedom, that just to shift it slightly in, in, in that direction. Um, that's another really important kind of corollary to, to all of this, which is that, you know, you recognize then you have a sense of responsibility for your own life, your, not only the views that you uphold or that you hold. And, and again, I, I think it's, it's not to say that philosophy means you have no convictions. You just, you just think about ideas, but you don't commit to any of them. That, that, that would be a kind of error as well. I mean, there are things that, that you hold dear and value and believe in, you know, but it's recognized that even there, there are limits to that. And I, I should be, it would be wise to, to be aware of that, you know, and that um, um, the things I am most certain about could be the things I could turn out to be quite wrong about as well. That 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 the feeling of certainty is no index of truth. I think that's another another um, important insight that philosophy can teach. That just because just because you feel it's true doesn't make it true. You might feel it's true because it gives you a lot of psychological comfort to have you, but that doesn't make it true, or it's not an index of its truth. Far from it. it could be just the opposite, right? Index of its falsity, if anything. So that's an important insight because I think people are very prone these days, especially, to take conviction that I really, really, really believe this to be true. Therefore, it must be true. You know, as they, they take that as that conviction as an index of the truth of one of their beliefs. And I think that's that can be quite a dangerous idea. That, that On that slippery slope down the other end is something like fanaticism, and that's, that's certainly to, to be avoided. But, you know, I mean, that idea of freedom that, that you mentioned earlier is important too, because in a way, if beliefs are something that we need to take responsibility for uh, within our culture, within our social context and historical moment, of course, then, you know, that throws everything open. Um, it can be disorienting. Um, it can be disconcerting. You know, you, you describe that experience of having your opinions kind of thrown up into the air in a sense. And, and that, that can be exciting in one respect, but it can also be quite stressful and anxiety-inducing in another sense. You know, it can be both. And um, and uncertainty is not something we tend to deal with very well. I think I think that's a psychological state that's not a happy one. Most people 
you know, for understandable reasons, try to find ways of, of um, controlling that sense of uncertainty about the future, about, you know, about whatever, and also controlling sense of anxiety that can be associated with having your opinions um, thrown up in the air and, and discombobulated. Um, and so, you know, then there's that desire to look for certainty, for look for solid ground again, you know, and that's, that's, that's a very understandable reaction, but then that can, you know, be often where we, we go astray. So I think those things are connected, um, you know, having your opinions and beliefs challenged, but also the sort of vertigo, that sense of freedom that opens up that um, can be exhilarating and exciting on one hand, but also can be quite stressful and anxiety-inducing on the other. And I think that's one of the challenging things about, about philosophy. It throws open that aspect of experience as well. Mm. That's... um. <clears throat> It's kind of exciting even just talking about it and it's it it kind of it, it does like evoke something just listening mm. to these sort of things and I guess what I'd like to ask is that and I think like Heidegger kind of talks about when you go into that authentic like mm. that authentic kind of mode you face the kind of the truth of your reality and you go past that existential angst and yeah. what have you um Robert, what is through the certainty what is through the uncertainty what is what is it that we as humans can kind of look forward to into questioning it all like what is that authenticity about yeah yeah again a really good question um and a difficult one to answer i mean i think you know um if you take that idea of philosophy and questioning as a as a, as a way of living that that you approach the world with a questioning attitude you know um i mean that's not what we tend to do and you mentioned heidegger heidegger's very good on describing how we ordinarily exist you know in this, in this very grounded practical engaged way you know for the most part i don't go around questioning my world all the time right i'd be like the philosopher you know the old story <laughs> in the greeks you know um who falls into a ditch because he's looking at the stars kind of thing that's the sort of <laughs> Cliche image of the philosopher, it's a grain of truth in it, like most literature. <laughs> but, you know, Heidegger was great uh, for articulating this very grounded, practical sense of our average everyday existence, where we, we're not questioning and reflecting and theorizing. We tend to be absorbed in tasks, practical activities, projects, things that, that are part of our, our shared world, shared practices that we engage in every day. And that's where our focus tends to be. And that's perfectly normal. And, and that's indeed how we live. And that's how it should be. But it is important also to sometimes disrupt that or sometimes unplug, as it were, from that routine or that routine way of being and to to question or to reflect or to, to probe and test our our limits, our beliefs, our ideas, our, our, our perspectives. Um, what do we get out of that? I think one of the things that philosophy can bring um, is greater clarity, greater understanding, a kind of um, groundedness. Like on the one hand, you know, as, as you as you described early on, when you first started reading philosophy, there is that sense of excitement, but also a kind of dizziness, almost like a vertigo, feeling like your your opinions are now kind of floating around um, and seem uncertain, right? Like I, I think of that. Um, nice scene that we showed in class in the film of philosophy discussion about um, I Heart Huckabees, you know, and these two characters debating the nature of reality. And then you see all these little pixelated images, fragments of 
of um, faces and images floating around and blurring into each other. There's that kind of experience of reality starting to blur a little bit because your your fixed way of getting a grip on things is starting to loosen up and 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 disintegrate in a sense, you know. But when you kind of go through that, um, at the other end, I think there's just a greater sense of clarity and vision and and perspective, you know. That that I, I think it's very um, in the end, it's very grounding and reassuring to to understand and appreciate that about ourselves that 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 we don't know as much as we think we know <laughs> and what we think we know is not always what we actually do know and others probably know a lot more things than we think they do and so i mean there's something very sobering and um there's a kind of humility that that teaches i think although the cliche again about philosophy classes and philosophers and you know <laughs> there's, there's a sort of campus cliche about the, the philosophy kid in the corner is always this know-it-all, right? The ones, oh yes, but didn't didn't Descartes say blah 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 blah? Didn't Kant argue this? Um, there is that sort of cliche, but really, once you get through that, I think what should come of it is a sense of um, you know of, of your humanity, of your human limits, of your your groundedness and acceptance of the limits of, of your knowledge and that that's not a bad thing. Um, it should teach a certain kind of humility, uh, I think, in, in, in the end, that, that ego should sort of, you know, be removed from the process over time. I don't think that always happens. <laughs> and I'm in an environment in academia where there's as much ego here as there is in any environment, any professional context. But it, it is what it is. But really, at the end of it, I think, um, and, and that's a struggle, you know, I, I, it's, it's not an easy thing, you know, I think ego is not always a dirty word, you know, sometimes healthy and good. But um, ideally, philosophy should, should teach us to, to respect the limits of our own knowledge and also respect and appreciate the knowledge and perspectives of others. I think that's another really important point. Um, dialogue, the idea that I'm never going to get to the bottom of things just sitting away on my own, cogitating in my armchair on my own. That, that's not how I'm going to get to the truth. But in dialogue with others, then we're on this shared quest. We're on this journey towards truth, even if we never get there. But in the process, we arrive at deeper understanding and greater, greater self-understanding and hopefully greater clarity about our relationship with the world and with others. And that, that in itself is a, is a virtue, I think, that does contribute to um, living well and living better. Wow. You know, it's funny because um, so an individual who is going out, you know, trying to be kind of successful, do things in the world, mm. um, you said clarity, understanding, um, vision, the ability to appreciate other perspectives, um, a grounding of, of kind of, mm. and, and almost a dissolving of um, ego. Um, these are all traits that ironically lead to higher levels of performance in the world, you know, which is... <laughs> well, approached in the right way, I think they can be. And and I certainly don't think that, you know, that, that again, cliched cultural stereotype of the philosopher, typically male, bearded, old, <laughs> and in the cave kind of thing, that Greek platonic, it is a cliche and it's not a, not necessarily a good one. That That, I mean, my sense is that today in our world, philosophy belongs in the streets or in the community, in the, you know, um, 
in in the spaces of the people. I think, uh, and that's as, as you know, that's one of the reasons why I'm attracted to uh, working on film and um, you know different ways in which philosophical ideas and perspectives can be explored through through uh, narrative and, and popular media and so on. Because I think it's important to have that sense of philosophy in the real world and that it doesn't mean that you withdraw from uh, reality, social reality, and, and retreat into your cave or into your Epicurean garden and, and just, you know, observe the world from a distance. I think it, 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 it can help and enhance us to live well. I mean, just on that point, um, Aristotle would totally agree that um, one of the benefits of, of greater uh, knowledge or wisdom is that one knows how to live well, and that means do well. Um, contribute to your society and do do good and flourish. And, you know, I think that's that's a very good thing and that's that's how it ought to be. So it can be, you know, um, approached ethically, and that's the key thing, I guess. Um, approached ethically it can help one do well in the world, um, but always with a strong ethical standpoint and, and ethical orientation. I think that's the other side that, that you pick up uh, doing philosophy is that it's never it's never just about getting more knowledge or never just about you know improving oneself but it's always also about how one engages with the community and the world that, that you're part of in, in an ethical fashion and I think that that's the other dimension that, that philosophy also um, teaches you and it gives you this compass you know to a kind of a moral ethical compass that you can bring to to the real world and to your relationships and to your you know your career and your professional uh, relationships and so on um, you know, I think that's something that, that has great value in a lot of environments. I mean, it's not for nothing that we're keen these days to teach, you know, professional ethics and business ethics and medical ethics and media ethics and so on. It's, it, you know, there, there's a need for it because we, we we can't just rely on a legal sort of rule list. We have to have good judgment and moral ethical understanding and professional judgment if we're going to do the right thing in, in all of the complex context in which we might work and, and find ourselves yeah well i think one thing's for certain i'll be cancelling my deposit on the cave that i just bought <laughs> and, uh, well, maybe hang on to it because it's gonna be valuable i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's um it's so interesting i love how how we've taken uh, how you robert you you take um philosophy into the world into the ethics of how we should interact in this social world we're in and and all these things and i think you touched on um on on film there which is yeah really exciting thing and i i guess i'd like to i'd like to jump across to um to to a film for a little moment around ethics and and how we live life and, and communication and i guess um i don't really know what question i have but i guess could you speak to that yeah absolutely so as I mentioned, it's it's an area that I'm particularly interested and involved in. Um, and as you know, there are different branches of philosophy. There's like ethics and metaphysics and logic and, and so on. And one of the branches is aesthetics or philosophy of art. And within that, there's this little niche area known as philosophy of film. And within that, I'm sort of very into this um, issue, this problem, this debate around film and philosophy or even film as philosophy. So that's where I've been sort of focusing my attention for, for quite a while now, for quite a few years. And I'm very interested in the relationship between film and philosophy, film and ethics, or even the idea of film as ethics, or, or what you might call cinematic ethics. 
So I've done a lot of work around that area, and I'm particularly interested in the way that film, you know, it's it's the global medium today. I think it's, you know, if you include under film all the audiovisual media, cinema, television, um, other audiovisual platforms, it's it's truly a global medium. It's the way communities and cultures tell stories, communicate, explore ideas on this, you know, a vast scale. And that's extraordinary. That's really and remarkable and film i think is a medium that's very rich very rich for storytelling but also uh can be a medium for exploring ethical experiences and philosophical understanding and perspectives in all sorts of complex ways so i'm really interested in the way film can do that and the way that is done in in our culture and, and in other cultures and that you know film's not just this trivial mindless entertainment or this dangerous manipulative force that's going to brainwash us can be those things of course <laughs> but in the middle it can also be this very rich and productive and, and ethical medium as well to, to help us you know culturally explore ideas so i'm constantly um amazed and impressed by how filmmakers pick up on really important be they social and political or cultural issues or moral ethical issues um or even psychological and social concerns and explore them through film in, in very rich and creative ways. So, I mean, just um, before coming on here, I was doing a little um, lecture recording on the film Get Out by Jordan Peele, uh, which is this fantastic psychological horror slash race slave allegory, um, which really touches on some very, very pertinent issues in relation to race, particularly in the American context. Um, and the experience of being black in America and the idea of so-called kind of post-racial white liberalism, uh, which this film is kind of critiquing in a way, saying you might have thought that, you know, because there was President Obama, that the race problem is pretty much solved in America. No, think <laughs> again, it's still very real, still very traumatic, still very present. Uh, and the film explores that in all sorts of very rich and creative ways. Um, and, you know, puts you in the position of having some kind of experiential access or perspective or engagement with the experience of this black character. And um, and that in itself is very important, I think, um, to, to give, you know, audience members who may not be uh, people of colour, who may be even outside of the US context, some kind of insight into this experience, this perspective, and um, some way of understanding the, the, the kind of traumatic and... Um, you know, suppressed dimensions of racism that we're not always aware of. And um, certainly, you know, in, in, in the American context, there's sort of benign forms of racism that can still be really insidious. And the film explores that uh, terrifically well using this psychological horror genre. So it's a, it's a, it's a ripper, I think, for that. But it's just one example among many of how I think films can be philosophical and ethical in really rich and, and creative ways. Yeah, no, it's... um. I, I had I I kind of had that I think everyone kind of has that unconscious sense that film does do that, but mm. I think I was particularly awoken to it um, just after studying um, your, your kind of film half of the semester. It's been yeah, yeah, very interesting. I I had a, a really interesting experience. One of my um my cousins, which I, I've mentioned, um, yes. Joey Joey, yes, he, he has a re he. He has a, I believe he has this really ethical and philosophical mind mm. and he's never really kind of, um, I think that's why he loves telling stories. He says that yeah. art can expand consciousness. 
And so it's um yeah. It's really incredible what like film can actually do. And yeah. I, yeah, like I guess I I've when I watched Get Out and like we were studying that it, it's a visceral feeling. You oh, feel yeah. it, you become it and you you yeah. know, experience that lifetime. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a great point and and I'm really struck by what you said about your is it brother or, or cousin? Uh cousin, 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 Joey. Yeah. That that I think like a lot of artists, I mean, you know, it's a matter of finding your medium. And if you're a, a storyteller, if you're a very verbal storyteller, then, you know, literature is the medium. Or if you're a very visual storyteller, then film is a fantastic medium. And finding your medium for him is obviously found film as his medium where he can explore and express himself artistically and tell stories. But stories themselves can be incredibly important. And in fact, are I think the dominant way in which we communicate knowledge in many ways. I mean, it's great doing philosophy and I love it, but but I know that, um, you know, more technical and abstract forms of argument and discussion debate, it's not for everyone and um, often not as powerful a medium as narrative. And narrative, you know, it's, it's to a large extent how we form a sense of self, self-identity, how we communicate knowledge and, and understanding in, our, in cultures from childhood right through, throughout the culture and throughout life. Um, narrative is incredibly important for understanding ourselves and for understanding the world that, that we're in. So if you can tell stories, very rich and innovative and creative stories in new ways, exploring important issues, topics, ideas, you know, anxieties and um, visions of the future that people might have, this is a really rich and profound way of contributing to the culture. You know, so I think it has a real philosophical value and ethical importance. And um, yeah, I, I admire filmmakers and other artists a great deal. I think they're doing really essential work in the culture to increase our self-understanding, as you say, to expand consciousness, as Joey says. Um, but also, you know, in the case of film, um, it's not just ideas. It's literally these experiences, you know, perceptual, emotional, visceral experiences too. You, you get to feel the what it's like aspect of a character's world or perspective on the world. And I think you get that with Get Out. You, you get some sense of what it's like to be a character like Chris confronting this very white, well-meaning, but quite sinister world. And, um, you know, some of the you know obstacles and, and challenges he faces in that environment. And I get to have a sense of that from a first-person perspective, which, which is otherwise difficult to do. I think the film does that really powerfully. And that's, that's one of the things you can do with film that, that can be very ethically important and, um, and enlightening. Hmm. That's, I think that like, it's really, it's, it gets really exciting around this whole story thing. That's very, mm-hmm. it's kind of very magical. Um, yeah. it's almost like, um, like, like if you, if you were to kind of, um, sum up the, the teaching points from, from get out it, it, um, and just say, and just try to tell it to someone, it yeah. would, it, it would, it's, it's hard because the story just sinks straight into it. Mm-hmm. Hey. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I agree. I agree. I think that, you know, you put it well, just you, you could sort of do it on a PowerPoint side. Here are the key points about racism. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you, you might sort of explain that to someone. They might go, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I can see that. Fair enough. But it's not going to have an impact. It's not going to particularly grab their attention, make them think, force them to reflect on something that, that they might not have otherwise have thought of or feel like, gosh, you know, I'm the, the, <laughs> I didn't realize that this sort of thing is something that, you know, I'm part of or affects me or that I have some role in. Um, 
Whereas a narrative can do that, and narrative arts can do that very powerfully. And um, and I think, again, that's one of the ways in which artists, particularly narrative artists, can use you know, literature or theatre or film to explore these ideas in ways that will really cut through with audiences or readership and hopefully bring about some shift in perspective. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's always very hard to, to predict this sort of thing. You, you can never really tell how audiences or readers will take up an artwork. But I think that idea of, in terms of the culture, shifting the conversation in certain directions, um, that's something artists can do very effectively. And, um, you know, create, create an environment where people are more likely to reflect on or see things in a different light or, again, question or, or, or probe their own beliefs, um, you know, given the sort of narratives and so on that, that, that uh, are part of the world we share. And that's where I think artists can play a really important role. It's not like kind of brainwash and reprogram people thinking <laughs> that it just doesn't work that way. It's more about persuading and shifting and inviting people to explore different perspectives in a, in a, you know, entertaining as well as thought-provoking way. And as a result of that, start to kind of shift the conversation and shift perspectives in certain directions uh, that, you know, might otherwise have been a lot harder to do. Robert, what I, what kind of triggered, like what came up in me mm. was that it kind of... um. As much as I know, like it, like art, and then that has that that ability, and it goes directly in. But sometimes when you're in, you're in class, you're you're mm. having that experience, like that the PowerPoint, the dot points are there, and it and it hits you, like it it hits you, sort of thing. And what I want to know from your experience, like teaching philosophy yeah. and kind of exploring this path, sort of thing, and with with students, um, what is it that allows you to kind of um like to to get through to a student or or to kind of um yeah to really connect because i know that um like yeah like what is it like what's going on there why mm. is it that some teachers kind of you say something and it's fallen on deaf ears but then other teachers you kind of go in and, and your mind is changed and there's, there's right. like yeah. Yeah, yeah again fantastic fantastic question gosh there's, there's a lot of things there I mean, at, at one level, just straight off the bat, I would say it's you're talking about the power of ideas here. And this is, you know, this is worth saying. I mean, I think sometimes people will say, well, ideas, that's all very well. It's just abstract, though. And, you know, they don't really make much difference. I, I disagree. I think they're, they're powerful lenses through which we can see the world in certain ways. So I really do think one of the things that can happen with philosophy, you read an amazing philosophical text or you you do a course that really opens your mind to a different way of seeing the world. Um, these ideas can be frames or lenses through which we see the world differently. I, I think it can literally shift how you see and experience and make sense of the world. And I certainly had that experience reading philosophy, um, you know, different ways of looking at the world, of understanding the world, others, reality, truth, you know, whatever you like. Um, that in some ways just profoundly shifted the way that I could see and make sense of, of my world. And that is itself a really powerful experience that, that can, can have you know, long-lasting effects. So, so that's at one level. But I think at another level, there's, again, a lot to be said about dialogue, discussion. And to me, 
philosophy is is a really um, wonderful discipline and practice because what you're doing is essentially inviting people to consider this or consider that or look at things this way or have a think about that or question this. So you're sort of starting with the idea that we're all inquirers here, we're all questioners, we're all thinkers here. And there's something egalitarian about that, right? Socrates, just just to him as a kind of classic example, um, really didn't stand on ceremony. And the idea was you are not in possession of the truth because you're a professor or you're a prime minister or you're a priest, right? It doesn't work that way, or a principal. <laughs> you're not in possession of the truth or even deeper understanding because of your status in society, right? That's not how it works. It's about ideas, about thoughts, about knowledge, about truth, about reflection, argument, debate, and so on. So all of us have that capacity. Insofar as we're human beings, you know, insofar as we have minds and consciousness, we are all capable of this kind of thought and this kind of reflection. So, so it's inviting people to explore that aspect of our own nature as human beings in an open and egalitarian way. I think that's that's the starting point. You can't have dialogue. Okay, I know sometimes when you read Plato, it's like, yes, Socrates, you're absolutely right, Socrates. Of course, Socrates, I can only agree, Socrates. It gets a bit like that's true. But really, the idea is the dialogue is meant to be open and it's meant to be a joint venture, a joint collaborative journey or enterprise where together you arrive, if not at the truth, then at least converge towards some deeper understanding with, with others. And that that's the ideal of philosophical dialogue. So it's premised on a kind of egalitarian view, you know, that, that we're all in this together. We're all seeking the truth, we're seeking understanding, and we can arrive at that together insofar as we're open to dialogue with each other, right? So th there's that aspect. I think that, to me, as a teacher, that's a really key thing. Approach your students and your teaching, not like, I'm the professor with all the answers, here they are. It's more about, well, let's explore this, or let's think about this, and let's let's um, you know venture into this area together, and and see see what we can can find and see what we can discover. And I think that's one aspect which which is really important. Um, you know, treating everyone like they have a say and they have a role to play. You know, that's that's really important. Um, I definitely think that you know. Again, like the ancient Greeks talked about rhetoric, um, you know, to, to get across to people, you've got to have that combination of the, um, you know, the, the logos, you know, the argument, the knowledge that you want to convey or explore. There's that side of it. Um, you've got to be someone who ethically, I think, people will, you know, trust or at least accept and 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 uh, acknowledge and respect. Um, and I think having that sort of open attitude is really part of that, building trust, in other words. But you've also got to have pathos, right? You've got to have that, as you said, that sense of excitement, emotional engagement. I think um, there's no knowledge or understanding without emotion, without affect, without mood. Um, that's a phenomenological point, but I think it's true. Um, you know, you have to bring and invite people into that that shared passion for ideas and for thinking. And, 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 Try to invite people to think of themselves as thinkers. You know, I always think that's really the key. Um, no one walks into the class with a badge on their lapel saying, I'm a philosopher, right? <laughs> Listen to me. It's, you know, we walk in there 
open and ready for, for discussion and exploring ideas together. And so everyone can contribute to that and everyone has the potential to do that. And everyone can get better at doing it. That's the other thing. Um, thinking of it as a skill. Um, in many ways, I, I think of philosophy and, and teaching even as a skill in the way the Greeks talked about it, a kind of an art that, that involves skill, like cooking is an art, you know, and becoming a good cook. It's a matter of skill and technique and art and experience and, and practice, you know, and getting better at it. And philosophy is like that as well. Um, I don't think there's anything magical about it. I think anyone can do it. But, you know, it takes time and practice to, to get good at it, to get better at it. And there's always more to learn. I always feel like every class, every semester, you do a little re review and you think about what you could have done better and what things worked and what things didn't and how you can improve and get feedback from people, their opinions, views about, about how things uh, went or what, what, what could be better. Um, all of that's really valuable, uh, I think. You know, but, but I'd say, you know, the, the power of ideas, um, inviting students as, you know, part of this community together with each other where we're, you know, sharing the spirit of inquiry together and also bringing that sense of excitement and emotional involvement of passion into it. It's really important. I, I was always inspired by uh, teachers who had a passion for what they teach. Um, I sometimes tell this story when I was at uni, I was doing a philosophy class with one lecturer I really admired greatly, but he was very stern and quite diffident and distant. And he was teaching this incredibly wild philosophy, French philosophy, incredibly wild, sexy stuff. <laughs> and his, his lectures, although I found them interesting, were, were kind of a bit pedestrian. But I was actually a medical student um, just prior to that. And there was a guy there who lectured on the gastrointestinal tract, the gut. And, you know, that's not a topic that necessarily lights my fire, okay? No disrespect to the GIT specialists. But the gut, okay, it's important, fair enough, but, you know, only think about it when it hurts. <laughs> this lecturer was so passionate, so committed, so involved in his area, the gut. He was the gut guy, the GIT uber specialist. And you couldn't help but be swept away by his enthusiasm. Everyone was like, wow, this is the most amazing part of the body. And I thought, you know what? There's a lesson there. It doesn't matter about the subject matter. Okay, that, that helps, but it's not really about the subject matter. It's about the commitment and the passion and the excitement you bring to it as a teacher. That's what will really get people's attention, not how exciting the material is on the page. So I, I learned a lot from that as a student. Wow. Wow. That's What's really incredible is that... Um, it's kind of like it goes back to what is inside the human, inside the mind, the understanding, and how that impacts, you know, ethically onto the world, like on, onto others. And I, I love how the, that dynamic there, and I love how it, it's like what what that what that teacher or that person um, brings, who yeah. they are, what they've questioned and become, is is something that influences others. That's really phenomenal. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully put. I, I really agree. Yeah, yeah. What's um? I got, I got uh, another question. Um, what's what's next up for for you, Doctor Rob? What's what's kind of got you excited recently? <laughs> you mean like in terms of sort of ideas or work and stuff I'm doing and, and things like that, or yeah, yeah, whatever ideas work, anything, mm -hmm. yeah, interesting. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm I'm uh, as, as you mentioned, I've, I finished this book, um, which was like a a revised and expanded version of an earlier book on film philosophers. I feel happy to, to have done that. 
Um, I started that over the COVID lockdown period, and I really, um, I, I, like, like everyone, I found it a real struggle during that period. Um, it was hard to get something new off the ground, so it was just right to go back to an older project and then re redo it, revamp it. So I was very happy to do that. What I'm interested in now, I'm actually going to be going to Berlin at the end of the year for a few months as a visiting fellow, which which be exciting because it's not only an amazing city, one of my favorite cities, but um, I haven't been out of Australia for several years like, <laughs> like most people. So that'll be a bit of a buzz actually being on a plane again. Um, but I want to explore um, both fiction and nonfiction. So I've become quite interested in documentary films as ways of doing philosophy, as ways of doing ethics. And um, again, I think there's a lot to be explored there about all sorts of contemporary issues, you know, where we're very conscious of some of the problems facing us in the world, take climate change and the environmental threats across the globe. I mean, these are huge problems, huge issues. There's nothing bigger than climate change or what some people these days call the Anthropocene kind of human age where we as a species are impacting on the planet you know, not only its environmental systems but even its geological makeup in ways that are potentially harmful and, and detrimental to, to life on the planet as a whole this is huge hard to imagine something more vast as a, as a challenge and a problem facing humanity and the world today but how do you get that across to people how do you get people's attention again and get people thinking and taking seriously what seems like such a vast and overwhelming problem where we just throw our hands up and like in the um, amazing satire, don't look up. But we don't look up. But we just say, hey, nothing to see here. Let's just carry on. Whatever happens, happens. I can't know. Well, whatever. I don't believe it. Oh, maybe I do. I don't know. Let's just carry on as though nothing were happening. That denial, which is a very common and familiar human response. But totally inadequate to some of the challenges we're facing today. So what I'm interested in is how can filmmakers contribute to, and this would be of interest, I'm sure, to, to you and your, your cousin as a filmmaker as well, how can filmmakers contribute to getting people to focus on and hopefully act on some of these seemingly overwhelming problems facing us? I think one of the things, you saw that even with COVID and the pandemic, when problems challenges become so vast and overwhelming i think people do feel a sense of cognitive overload and shutdown and, and go into a denial mode or, or, or a kind of uh, narrow focus mode where we just don't deal with it because it's too big too overwhelming and too frightening in a way um, or will entail such dramatic changes that that, that fills us with a lot of anxiety and, and fear or, or reluctance so what can filmmakers filmmakers do to try to make these problems seem more manageable as in intelligible. We can make sense of them more, not get overwhelmed and hopefully see some way out of what the challenges uh, are that, that we're confronted with. So I'm interested in both fiction films, but also documentaries that are trying to find ways to do this with these really big problems. So you know, I've looked at some environmental documentaries and different strategies that filmmakers use to try and, um, you know, get across to audiences the importance of, let's say, the impact of technology or the environmental crisis or climate change, things like that. And, you know, what's the, what's the best, what's the most effective approach? Do you just, you know, tell people the facts and figures? Look, here's the truth, guys. Listen, listen up. Here are the facts and figures about global warming, about 
carbon emissions, about what will happen to the planet if we get over two degrees global warming over the next you know, 20 years or 30 years or whatever. Here are the facts and figures. Off you go and, and act on it. Is that the most effective approach? Or maybe a more sort of abstract, poetic, artistic, creative approach to kind of get people in a, in a, a frame of mind to sort of expand their thinking and, and start to see the world from a different perspective. And maybe that will make us more receptive to the message. Or is there some combination of argument and kind of creative, you know, narrative and creative presentation that works best to, to uh, get people to focus and hopefully also not just inform and educate people about a problem like climate change, but to get them to hopefully act in some ways in response to that problem. So, so I'm sort of interested in exploring ways in which filmmakers do that and, and maybe what the most effective ways might be to, to um, face some of those challenges and hopefully use film as a medium to um, help us respond to them. You know, the, beautifully enough, um, I think your definition or your, your kind of your perspective or wisdom at the very start was taking knowledge and then applying it to a, to a good life. Right. I think that's, that's really cool because that's, that's the big question. Hey, like how, how do we actually, how, how can our philosophy and, and things turn into a better world? And I, I think that's really cool. And, um, Robert, I would, I would ask you for, um, for, for the final point, is there anything in your heart that you want to, get out and, and say to the world, what is it that's what are, that's calling to be called out? <laughs> well, I, I guess, look, if, if I had to just boil it down to one thing, I would just say, um, don't give up hope. I think there's such a, like I was just saying this, you know, and I feel this myself along with, you know, I guess so many of us today. Um, if you look at the problems confronting us, and I think also the younger generation, so your generation, I've got, you know, um, uh, teenage and young adult daughters, um, the challenges facing the next generation are immense and and profound. And I feel for the younger generation because they're inheriting problems not of their own making, but for which they will become responsible and have to respond to and live through in, in your own lifetimes, you know, after folks like us are long gone. So I feel that is a profound challenge facing, you know, humanity, facing facing the planet. And in the face of that, it is it is um, easier to withdraw or to shut down or to deny or to just get overwhelmed, you know. And and I do think people respond in different ways. Some people just ignore the problems, not, not my concern, not my problem. Others are affected and feel anxious and distressed or paralyzed or don't know what to do. And I think this is, you know, we all experience that to some extent. We're all very human in that respect. But I... I guess the challenge is not to give up hope, not to um, despair and to uh, know that there are always ways that we can and must respond and will respond to whatever the challenges are and that we need to, to hold on to that and um, you know, not lose heart and not fall into nihilism and skepticism and passivity and a, a sense of hopelessness. That, that would be a terrible mistake, um, even though it would be understandable you know, under these very, very, you know, unprecedented conditions, as we keep saying, that, that we're constantly faced with, that, that that sense of uncertainty, we don't know what's around the corner. You know, that's that's really, 
you know, the future being open to come back to the existential point is exhilarating and is, you know, the definition of, of possibility, right? That we don't know what's to come or what's to happen. And that so much of it, not all of it, but a lot of it is in our hands. But that can also be very stressful, very anxiety inducing. So how do we find that balance between hope and despair, especially in a world that is throwing great challenges before us, particularly for the next generation? That, that to me would be the, the, the key thing to, to meditate on and to try and think of um, how we should respond best to, especially for the, for the next generation. Whoa. I mean, that's, that's an awesome, awesome question to be asking. I think, I think personally, I'll definitely be meditating on that one. I mean, instead of uh, what are you going to do when you're when you're old, like what are you going to do, like what profession, how are you going to impact the world? What do you, what will, what will the hope you'll bring in? I think that's that's really, I mean, that's that's wisdom. I believe. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, and again, I meet a lot of young people who really do fill me with that hope and have this fantastic attitude to the world and and i think you know we we can learn from that you know especially if you're a bit older you can definitely learn from that i'm certainly seeing that with my kids you know and uh, they have an amazing perspective on the world that i think we we all need to kind of value and and nurture and, and and cherish wow wow well robert it has been an absolute pleasure just absolutely this time and just chatting um like this, this is what my podcast, uh, me starting it, was all about. This, this conversation. <laughs> That's wonderful. I've thoroughly enjoyed. It. I really appreciate it, Jacob. And just wonderful, brilliant questions. So thank you. That's really what's made it, made it happen. And um, yeah, look, I, I think it's a wonderful idea. This podcast. And I really hope that it, it flourishes and that you do really well with it because it's a it's a very valuable contribution to you know making things just that bit better. <laughs> thank you so much Robert and I'll definitely have to get you on for a sequel sometime in the in the near future you bet and, uh, <laughs> yeah and um, if if anyone wants to like um, like reach you or contact you or if there's any um, yeah. books that like that you recommend or something like mm-hmm. that what how, how what's to go there well I guess look feel free to email me you know my email is robert.cinebrink at mq.edu.au. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> I will try to get back to you. Um, you know, email's pretty pretty clogged up kind of medium. But nonetheless, yeah, feel free to, to email me or if you want to, maybe through you, Jake, and maybe email you and you can pass on to me. That might be a, a better way to do uh, do it. So if there's any questions or queries that might be out there, yeah, just, just pass them on. I'd be happy to respond. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Robert, I'm going to go uh, take my trip to the cave and <laughs> think about this one. <laughs> Good to hear. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening, and we will talk soon. Thanks, Jacob. Real pleasure.